Hello, Deha. Welcome to the Flourishing Practitioners Podcast, where we talk all things about space holding, caring for our clients, and succeeding in our businesses. We explore the wisdom from coaches, counselors, and healers. My name's Gabrielle Walker, and I'm so honored that you're here. Let's dive in. So, this conversation with Dr. Trevor Simpler was from September 2022. So a while ago, more than a year, I still can't believe when I'm editing through these, how time flies. And I'm so grateful to the participants, the interviewees for their patience and waiting for these. Trevor was one of my tutors when I was studying counseling and I really appreciated his style, his humanness with us and how he really entered into our minds about how we were learning and what might help us as new counsellors entering the space. And when we had this conversation, I was still trying to figure out in my mind how my existing therapeutic life coaching practice interacted with counselling. And I feel like more settled in that now in my body and in my practice. And it's become clearer with time. Yet at this time, I was still trying to work out like, how does counselling differ from life coaching? And how am I going to hold this within the umbrella of Wonderkind or Tūrahanga counselling? What does it all mean for my life? And I knew I loved counselling. I was surprised by that factor. And yet I didn't know quite how it was going to fit in just yet. So when I listen back on this, I can really hear my newness to the space. And even though I've been practising for around 10 years, counselling is different and the energetics around it are different. So I'm trying to figure it out and this interview is so beautifully that uh, I hope it, it serves you also to head off in a little bit of a different direction so there are a few things happening in the Wonderkind world the upcoming trainings that I have are Raranga Tipua and Raranga Tinana so looking at the guardians of our heavens and then the way that the heavens interact with the body and these are taking starting in January 2024 I can't even believe I'm saying 2024. So if you are interested in connecting with us around that philosophy within Māori healing in particular, we look at it from a healing lens, then please check out uh, the Wonderkind website and I'd love to hear from you. It's been really cool to have people from across the world enter the training spaces. I definitely feel so honoured and so touched uh, the recordings we meet weekly for 13 weeks going through the 12 heavens and then also a closing week on the 13th week and there's people from across Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand, we've got some people in the States and Europe so wherever you are uh, maybe the call times won't match with you but you will receive a recording so just reach out if that's something that does interest you and for now let's dive in to connect with Trevor. Good morning Trevor, Dr Trevor Simpa, thank you thank so you. much <laughs> for offering uh, to do this talk with me and to support other practitioners and space holders. Uh, so you're a counsellor and a psychotherapist and I'm sure so many other wonderful things um, that we'll get to explore across this time. Yeah, please share it, how you got into counselling and psychotherapy, whatever came up, comes up for you. Yeah, sure, sure, will do. And thanks for having me. Very nice to be here. And I'm, it's good, good uh, feeling to be uh, making contact with other practitioners and uh, new colleagues that I haven't met yet. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly recent addition to Western Australia. Uh, I've lived in the UK most of the time, but I trained, trained back there. Um, in the UK and in the United States for a while, uh, quite some years ago. And I got into it. I got into counselling really through working in a job in, in our National Health Service in the UK. Um, and I, I was visiting a project which was run by a lady. She's called Jean O'Keefe. Uh, and Jean was sitting with a group of uh, other women who were all talking about disordered eating at that time. So they were in, a, in like a community centre in a rural part of Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. It's like a two hour drive from my house in the middle of nowhere. And I went out there because I guess I was supposed to look at projects and if they were any good, give them money was the idea. And so I turned up and there was Jean talking to these ladies and I was, you know, I sort of sat in the room. I guess she must have invited me for me to be there. But I, anyway, I was sat there and she was 
these ladies were talking about their disordered eating and Jean was listening and occasionally saying something and it went on for a while like that and I, I just got this overarching feeling this is brilliant you know what she's doing is brilliant uh she's uh, holding space that's uh, I, I love that phrase <laughs> I hear it 10 times a day probably but I, lo I love that phrase she's holding space for these for these women uh and they're talking about uh things that are that, that were fairly common between them and she's obviously making reflections and doing essentially what Carl Rogers uh taught people to do uh from you know over 70 years ago in terms of good at hold, holding space for people you know skillful skillful listening and I guess I must have just thought more or less there and then I I'd like to be in here doing this you know, I'd like to be doing what she's doing. So anyway, things progressed. And I guess I, they probably got the money, I would imagine, for the project. And then Jean sort of invited me and said, well, you could what you could do is you could come here on a Thursday night and you could sit sit in the room, do this with us. Uh, we're going to run it as a sort of training program. What happens is you take part. So you give of yourself and, and reveal your own problems and secrets. And we do the same process. And we do that for, I don't know, 12 weeks or something like that. And then, uh, you know, we get you into a position where you could be a facilitator. So it all span on from there. And I, and I recognised Carl Rogers, particularly Carl Rogers in Gene, uh, from an undergraduate course I'd done uh, some, some while before. So I'd done a lot of formal education, a degree and a master's degree and all that kind of thing. But, but I'd not been practising in, in counselling. And so it just span on from there. I did, I did lots of short courses then. I did transactional analysis I did uh, motivational interviewing um, you know more person-centered counseling cognitive behavioral therapy dialectical behavior therapy eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and so I did lots and lots of courses like that over the years and then I I ran essentially disordered eating weight management related health related projects inside the university we we called them all small changes in the end gene and i wrote a book called small changes we wrote research papers we talked about this in the uk and around the world in different places different forums um, and that was all about us running a group therapy session for people for around their health i mean it, you know we it was weight management and disordered eating but the amount of anxiety depression people struggling with their alcohol and so forth that we saw was 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 also tremendous so we saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in small groups over a period of about mm, 10 years uh, back in the early 2000s um and then and then that because i was so interested in the motivational interviewing particularly uh and client-centered counseling I, I centered my doctorate around that while I was at the university I set up a program which involved me seeing people one-to-one um, -one as well as in groups and, and and my work was getting coded by the, well an organization called the motivational interviewing network of trainers which is essentially a group of counselors psychotherapists and people particularly interested in motivational interviewing um, but you know it's a worldwide uh, deal but 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 a great deal of that is centered in Europe and the United States. There are, for instance, numerous, you know, Kiwi practitioners, for example, uh, and folks from Australia. So uh, that 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 really, really tied me into counseling then. And motivational interviewing is an accessible format and an accessible modality of counseling that you can start training in pretty quickly, you know, with a two-day workshop. I'm not saying you can learn to do it in a two-day workshop, but you can you can get started and it's extremely welcoming. You don't need to have a six-year psychology internship to get onto it. You can it's something people can start doing because they're interested in holding space. That really attracted me. What called you about the Carl Rogers aspect? Like what what if you if you're thinking about that yeah. when comes to mind maybe an explanation for those who don't know yeah. but also yeah, sure. what, what called you and with that well it, this is it was great actually because this is I didn't realize that it was one of those moments in life that would affect me for decades and years and years and years but I was sat in a and there was a lady she was a counselor a practicing counselor in London and she must have been called into the university to deliver this module this unit on counseling and what she did was she basically took the three main approaches so a sort of psycho um therapy you know a freudian psychotherapeutic approach uh carl rogers approach and then a more behavioral approach and those three things like freud and his 
couch and his unconscious and, and all of that stuff, id and ego and super ego is on one hand. Then you've got the behaviorists starting off with guys like Skinner uh, way back when, but, it, but you know, when you think about cognitive behavioral therapy and the modern adaptations of that, there's the behaviorists. And then you have Carl Rogers, which is very much about client-centered, person-centered uh, approach or person, you know, and so the phrase person-centered listening is very much like a, 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 a detailed explanation of what we mean when we say holding space for people. Yeah. So, so they can, she compared the three and that's what you were to do. I guess we had an exam and a, you know, a paper that we had to write comparing the three. And I just got to the end of that and thought, wow, Rogers wins. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 He's and, obviously and, right. <laughs> and then how would you, cause person-centered, I think is a term that's sometimes thrown around a lot. But yeah. what, what do you feel like it means on a deeper level if, if there was someone who either didn't know about it or someone who did but wanted more nuance in terms of yeah. what that means? How would you describe that? Well, it is nuanced. And, and I mean, broadly speaking, the, the notion is literally accepting that the other person uh, is certainly of equal value and worth in this relationship between the two of you. Uh, and that in, in relation to expertise, you know, they know a lot more about themselves than you do. And so they are really, the, the you know, they re really are the expert in the room and you're there uh, to be helpful and facilitative and sure you bring things to the, the conversation. So it's very much about, it's literally about being in tune with that person and trying to find out, um, you know, what it is that they want and what they need and what's going on for them. So it, yeah, it's listening at a very deep level. Yeah, I love I love that explanation, and I think I think I I just wanted to put pop in there because I'm thinking of when I'm trying to explain that to others. What I notice in myself is when I um, falter with it, when I tend to like lose that connection of person centeredness, as if I'm feeling insecure or there's sort of like this energy that comes over me of like, oh oh I know the answer. It's like that that desire to <laughs> fix almost you know. So it's like, and as yeah. a real, do you find that it can be a bit of a dance within yourself to all the time, yeah. I find that it is all the time, and that 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 um, you know maybe maybe time has 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 managed to subdue that a little bit. But uh, but that answer coming bursting forth that is the right answer or the solution, I think, is common to people, but also perhaps even stronger in people who are helpers. If we're drawn towards helping other people, and that that's our meaning, we're going to be helpful and useful to other people. Then maybe, maybe that that automatic response of wanting to provide a solution is is strong in us. I mean, I will share with you. I was having a conversation with my lovely uh, supervisor yesterday, my now retired supervisor. He, he supervises me, but he's retired from from being a psychologist. Uh, and we were having this discussion where I was talking about a client um, who was dysregulated and particularly anxious. And I noticed that in the session and was, was working towards helping uh, ground him, you know, to help him feel a little bit less anxious, actually, in the session. But I realized after we'd, after we'd parted company that mostly that was coming from me. You know, I'd got the grounding exercises. I'd got the experience of meeting emotionally dysregulated people sometimes with with you know with even with psychosis people with with you know severe problems and and because I know oh well this works for calming people down and making them feel at ease and so that was the appropriate thing to do but after we'd left parted company I realized that some of the things that I did were working and some of them were not and and the obvious thing that I could have done is because at one point I said to the client um how are you feeling right now and he said pretty anxious and it was clear that he was but what I didn't do what I didn't say was of the things that we're doing together what is it that's helping and what if anything's getting in the way because something about the something in that talk that grounding talk although my intention was absolutely of course to to do the to do the right thing and be very helpful was actually triggering him yeah. uh, was was not helping and you know, my, my reflection on that when talking to my supervisor was, well, clearly I could have asked him, you know, I could have said to him, well, what is it that, what am I doing that is not so helpful? Because I'll avoid that and stick with the things that are working. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's a really um, permission giving as well to other people to be in their exploration of those things. And 
what pops in for me around that is that that's what I think I've gained the most from the counseling training is like literally ask everything like is that working yeah. for you? like because prior I think I was making a few assumptions of like oh here's what works for most people so we'll just yeah. sort of round that out where it's like yeah it, it's really given me so much insight into how individual everyone is and how even one word can have so much different meaning for a different yes. person and a word that we may be using very neutrally and well-meaningly could have a completely different meaning for that person or, or yeah. different things yeah it's nicely put i think that's it isn't it, it it's you know what you, that's exa exactly it is is the, the, the intention isn't necessarily the receipt and so a lot of the time that happens in conversations, obviously, where, where you know, you, in, you intended something that was fairly neutral, but the receipt has been, has been different. You know, someone's perceived that as an attack, for example, when you were, when your, your intention was quite different. So, it, yeah, so that just, I guess, just tells me that I need to be, you know, what I need to be doing in that instance is listening harder. <laughs> sort of like listening harder than I was. Again, with the definitions, how do you understand um, holding space? Like, how would you describe that on a more nuanced level? Well, certainly putting myself to one side. So, I, you know, that's one of the things is like I, I, I hold holding space is partly about yeah putting putting my stuff to one side my concerns of the morning or the later afternoon or generally in life to one side so that i have just given as close as i can to 100% attention to what that person's saying <laughs> i'd love to, love to hear yeah, what, how would you describe motivation? Do you remember what, what comes Well, it's, it, in a, you know, in a nutshell, MI is born out of Rogers again, out of Carl Rogers again. There's no sort of, there's no MIs. This is what the originators, Bill Miller and uh, Steve Rolnick would say is, is there's no, there's no motivational interviewing without, without Rogers. So that's lovely because I mean that, that his work in relation to how to be uh, or how to hold space with a client really filters into all therapies now so even if you're on a in a, in a focusing on a solution focused approach or a cognitive behavioral approach you'll find that the attending skills and the way of treating the person and being with the person is influenced by this this notion of person-centered counseling so mi is 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 absolutely based on and predicated on the idea of person-centered counseling but it also has a very um it has a very natty way of encapsulating that rogerian approach and there's a quantitative way of counting and measuring what you're doing so you know you, you and i find myself doing this a lot in training with people um so for example when you think about the holding space notion one of the things that you'd be interested in is how much am i talking compared to the other person so and proportionately, given that it's a counselling conversation, you, you would like to feel that the client would be speaking the most. Um, and so the notion of a talk time ratio, which you and I have probably discussed before, but the talk time ratio is me identifying how much am I speaking compared to the person that I'm holding space for. And that sort of idea, talk time ratio, and measurement of my own behaviors you know what am I doing when I do speak to the client am I am I asking them an open question or a closed question uh, am I affirming a quality in that person in some way something that I've noticed that's true um, or just reflecting reflecting back something that's obvious that they just said you know I'm tired and I reflect back that they're tired or am I reflecting something else that's deeper in relation to their feeling or you know a, a meaning that's come out of what they've said so those things being measured, those behaviours, things like, I mean, that, that acronym, I've just sort of more or less introduced it, AWS, is common in MI. It can get a bit, <laughs> can get, you know, it's like this for anybody that's really into something, but it gets a bit annoying that perhaps people see something like motivational interviewing as just AWS <laughs> or, or just something that's used for brief interventions, um, neither of which are actually true. But yeah, AWS is open questions, affirmations, reflections or reflective listening and reflections and summaries. So they're behaviours that are really typically done for, for all of us that are holding space. And it's a nice, it's especially nice for people training, I suppose, because you can, you can, look at your behaviors if you re replay a recording you can look at your behaviors and see 
in each instance, how long were they talking versus me? And what was I doing? Every time I made an utterance, what was it? What did I, what did I do? Uh, and that's really helpful. It's really helpful because you'd be able to see whether you're suggesting uh, or whether you, God forbid, you interrupted the person, uh, that kind of thing, the stuff that you're trying to eradicate or reduce. And, and you'd see all the good stuff. You'd see all of the, 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 the positive bits that made the person really understand that you were listening, you know, really feel that you were listening. Is the intention of that really active listening my understanding is it's, it is to create more longitudinal and sort of more ch lasting change is that correct or is it there well yeah I mean that, well, that's a good point it, it, I, I guess because I was born out of the addictions field so that was a, one of the big things about alcohol and addictions and it and it's very much the real sort of point where it diverges and, and becomes its own thing rather than just client-centered counseling is the notion of helping people resolve their ambivalence. Mm -hmm. So people obviously feel ambivalent about things, including drinking, um, that, you know, they get something from it or they wouldn't do it, but also it could be awful and destructive as well. So they've got that continuous ambivalence. And when you think about it, ambivalence is the same with, you know, take your pick really. I'd like to get in really great shape, but I also like eating cheesecake and sitting on the sofa. So you're kind of like, well, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, we're ambivalent about things. Um, and MI focuses on that ambivalence and its resolution. And it does that uh, by being more directive than client-centered counseling uh, suggested. So Rogers originally was talking really about, you know, entering into the world of the person and, and, and following them and not, not, not trying to direct and lead them, but following them. Um, well, it, yeah, so that, that's, that's the that was the original idea. Now, MI it is directive as well as as well as client person centered. So, for example, in in those open questions, if I'm saying to a client, "Well, if you did decide to make that change, why would what would you get from it?" Because when you ask a question like that, of course, people will say, "Well, my clothes would fit better. I'd be able to go out shopping again." I'd be able to get down onto the rug and play with the grandkids without having pain in my knees. They've got, re they start talking about the reasons for change. They start talking about uh, once you've opened that up and invited them, they start saying, you know, why they should, could, have to, need, ought to make a change and the, the reasons for change. So that, become, that then becomes change talk. And eliciting that talk, eliciting change talk in a client um, turns out to be very powerful. So if, you, if you, you're asking me that question and I say, well, I, I ought to do something about it, really. And then you say, well, what do you mean when you say you, you ought to? And I say, well, you know, it would be better for my health if I was to cut down on my drinking. I, you know, maybe, you know, my kids wouldn't be so mad at me or I wouldn't get into so much trouble or, you know, I'd, I'd be able to hold down a job or whatever the things are that come up there. Of course, I'm talking about reasons for change. And, and as the practitioner, we're sitting back and saying, oh, I see. Right. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's a you, 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 you'd, you'd get a job, you'd uh, have a better relationship with your family. Uh, you feel like your health would be better. You'd be less cloudy in the morning. I get it. I see. And we're just reflecting back the, the, the person's internal dilemma because they'll say, but, you know, it changes my headspace. And, you know, it's a pretty difficult place to be inside my head. So it's quite nice to change that headspace and switch it all off a little bit. And you got right. OK, so there are reasons that drive you to keep on doing it. And then some other pretty powerful reasons for change. Well, <laughs> I am being directive because, you know, I might in that conversation, I might choose to do things like reflect the. The negativity, if you want, I suppose it's the negativity, the keeping the status quo of staying drinking. But then I'm, I'm very likely to end that reflection with, and then there's the reasons of holding down a job, your relationship with your family, feeling like your, your health is going to improve mm -hmm. at the end. Because, because it tends to be that people pick up on that and they focus on the last thing you said. 
it, change talk is important and that in motivational interviewing and change talk i mean especially if you look at the work of paul amrein in the united states he he was following conversations and again i don't want to do paul any injustice and get this clear here but he he essentially listened to conversations that were helping focused i guess and the, and and when people said i should i could i ought to i uh, that sort of thing, even I need to, that was one strength of change tool. That predicted, it was related to people changing, but quite, you know, it's weaker than people saying, I am going to, I will, uh, you know, and, and tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. So, so, so he differentiated between preparatory change talk, I should, I could, I ought to, mobilizing i am going to and i will and it and it turned out that the more people elicited the change talk in in clients the stronger it became the more likely it was to 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 you know to evolve into sort of more mobilizing mm. uh, language if somebody's come to see you and they say well look gabrielle I've, I've come to see you because i'm i i'm struggling with my alcohol intake and that's what i want help with I guess you've just opened the door to say, I'm expecting you to do things that might help me reduce or control it. Mm -hmm. And then MI comes in and is, is perhaps you could say a little bit manipulative because I choose to do things like, well, elicit the change talk, but purposefully focus on the direction of change. There are problems for doing this and there's reasons for you to keep on drinking. And I see that they're pretty strong and that's important. You've had a real hard time of it, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the fact that you feel like you might save your life and your relationship and this and that, if you could manage to change it. In the context of more the brief intervention space, say in like different, um, yeah. is there suggestions you would give to those practitioners if that their, their workplace is instructing them? Yeah, I would. Because in a non-judgmental manner? Yeah. Like how, how, how to engage with that because I think I think in the counseling space like we have that luxury of a bit more time often in a way yeah. there's that um rapport building can happen over a bit more time than say with other yeah. um other intervention spaces yeah yeah I mean I think that yeah so I suppose the thing with with one of the core underpinnings of the MI approach of course is the whole client-centered thing so in terms of like a way of being and an entire and complete psychotherapy it it's it's good um so it it, it, it the the aspect of things like the change talk and helping sort of motive help draw out the motivation that's inside someone i mean that's important because it's not about instilling motivation from the outside it's taking drawing out the motivation that's already inside somebody well, that is an extremely important element but there's just simply nothing to really disagree with in relation to the approach for um a way of being with a client even if it's long term because of course the central points are client-centered reflective congruent uh, listening and, and relationship between the, the 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 client and the practitioner and even and if you look at the in the sort of technical aspects and the sort of things that people are doing technically you know if i was to come up with an example in with my mi approach on i might do something like say well i was just wondering here now whether there was something that some of my other clients have found useful that that i could that i could introduce to you so that I'm checking very carefully with a in to see if they're interested in my advice or my my whatever it is I'm going to suggest. And then the client might well say yes to that. And I say, well, they've taken this approach called um, uh, acceptance commitment therapy uh, for their anxiety. And it's a kind of evidence-based approach. There's six phases to it. There's exercises and things that are really useful within it. And I, and I could describe that to you or, you know, and go through it with you in brief uh, to see to see whether we think it might be useful for you. And then after I've done that, I might then say, well, what do you what do you what do you think to that idea to check in, you know, what 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 they think? Well, that that's kind of that process, elicit, provide, elicit. So I elicit whether you'd like me to give you the thing that I've got in mind, uh, then I provide it if you do want me to, and then I check in with you to see what you're thinking. How have you? What do you think to that idea? Does that sound like it's a goer? Because you've got the chance to say no, not really. I've heard of that, and it doesn't really. I'm not. Doesn't really appeal, or I don't think it works. Or whatever you're going to say, yes, let's give it a go. It'll be great. It's a. It's a 
particular process used a lot, again, in motivational interviewing, elicit, provide, elicit. So it's technical, but you'll notice that the thing that I'm providing is a suggestion that we might work on acceptance commitment therapy together. I find that it's a terrific surrounding approach for integrating other other forms of therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's very, very adaptable and inclusive to to anything else you might be doing. If I'm thinking of my um, trainees, for, for them, I would really love any suggestions on how they really listen to what the client is asking, you know, because for us, it's yeah. a bit different and different than a that particular context where there's an obvious issue, even though there's often that. So the client's coming and um, they, they may not know exactly what they're working with, but sure. that, yeah. that, that, that listening yeah. to yeah. what it is there yeah. between you that day yeah. I would I would just love to tease that out a little bit if, if that yeah well it, I mean if, uh, yeah and I think the thing is with that idea of 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 I'm going back to Rogers again but that idea of con being congruent and it, it you're you're there you are the two of you entering into this curious relationship where the person might be they might be as you said confused about what it is exactly but say you know and that happens a lot you know in my consult the room that we're sat in now but the the, the the people would come through and say well I don't really know you know it's a bit of a mess at the moment it's a bit of a tangle and I'm not sure what to do or what I'm supposed to do or what I need but let me tell you all about it and and off you go and I suppose from a practitioner point of view it's really important to a say well okay let me sit and listen and hear what that story is and all the stuff that's tangled up that's such a mess. And if you're going through that and you get to the point where you think, well, I feel, I feel confused, that's a good thing because <laughs> the client's confused. And so you're probably being fairly empathetic if you, if you feel confused yourself. <laughs> you know, you're probably, you're probably, you're probably really getting, getting into their frame of reference because they're confused. And, you, and, and I mean, the congruency part is really um, where, you know, I might be saying, we might be saying, well, there was this and there's this and there's that and there's this and there's that. And it's all, you know, it's really quite overwhelming. I can tell that at the moment for you, but it really feels like, you know, a confusing place over where to start. And I, and I kind of feel the same, you know, I feel as well, like I'm not really sure where to start with it because I'm being very, uh, you know, I'm being very congruent with, with perhaps what's coming up inside me. So if it's helpful, that's a good thing, isn't it? Where you sort of say, well, I, you know, I, I, it's, you've had a, a lot on, an awful lot of stuff happening and, it's, and it and it's, doesn't seem any wonder to me that it's confusing. And I, I kind of feel a bit confused myself in terms of where we, where we might start with that. But of course, from the client's point of view, that, you know, I, I stand a really good chance of, of, of achieving good listening you know I, I stand a good chance of getting that far anyway mm -hmm. uh before we move on to whatever we're going to do next you know to try and untangle this mess so for our train my trainees there um we, we aren't talking for as long so but there's still an aspect yeah. of doing body work or things like that where yeah. you can come you can sometimes pop into the savior or the helper or the sure. um, you know we're literally standing over a body yeah. Um, so, so there's that that power dynamic there, but but there's that for, for me just one of those important pieces for terms of what I share is that really just listening to what that person needs and building yeah. really active yeah. listening skills because yeah, yeah I, I I think I think it's a skill like it, like it is this practice and there's little nuances to it where we may not realize in our everyday lives that we are or are not doing that. And so yeah. how everyone yeah. describes it in their understanding and their practice. As you were talking there, I thought the thing is we probably one of the difficulties with this holding space idea is 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 probably getting caught up in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the that idea of putting yourself to one side can become quite difficult. And maybe we also could get caught up in the in it was something that Steve Rolnick, one of the originators of MI, said one day to me in a workshop, was like he catches himself. He catches himself um, being clever, you know, and he sort of he and then says, "Oh, stop! Don't do, stop doing that. That's not. That's not." I mean, he in in objective terms, he is clever. He's a super professor with all these kind of plaudits and, and whatnot, you know. But but what he's saying is, I don't need to be clever. That's not the point. I'm trying to be helpful. 
So I really want to put that to one side. And I suppose cleverness is a, is a sort of um, the sort of thing that you would do maybe in Freudian type psychology where, you, where you're interpreting and say, ah, I've got you, I can work out what, what the meaning of that is, sort of that sort of thing. And, and I sort of think, well, okay, it's difficult if you're involved for a long time not to make associations inside your own head, but that isn't necessarily always useful. You know, it's kind of like, well, what, what, is, gonna, what is most useful to this person right now? is kind of like the question that should constantly be going through us, I suppose. I think that's the key point is like every person, even if you've seen them over a period, right now they're a different person. And, yeah, and, right yeah, now, yeah. and right now they may have come to you with a different thing or a different perspective that they're willing to unravel to you or show to you. Yes, yeah, yes. I think that's it. Well, that, that's a really good point because, again, it's what a nice reflection that is for the client to hear too. Is like, well, you might, you know, if we we get a good relationship, I tend to ask my clients how they think we're getting on together. So I tend to do that in the first session when we've had some time together. So, well, what do you what do you make of this relationship? You know, the two of us, we've been talking for fifty minutes or whatever, and um, I'm I'm sort of interested in what you what you think <laughs> you know are you thinking about that uh, because that's important and then them being different at different times right now you might be a lady who's quite emotionally dysregulated and upset because we're talking about emotive things and that's what you've come here for but you might be a powerful career woman tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and I know that that's true it, it doesn't mean that you aren't you're you know you're you're, you're that way now yeah. uh, because we're not we're doing we're different things at different times and it's okay you know it's good and and I think maybe I think clients seem to like the idea of that because it, it absolutely respects the fact that when you're in a vulnerable and emotional and sharing, offloading type space, of course, you're not the, the dynamic, organized sort of person you might be, you know, at 2 p.m. the next day. But it, it's nice for us to recognize that, isn't it, in people so that they, they you know, we, we make a tacit acknowledgement of that so that we, we, we say, well, all people are not all the same at all times. They, they are different. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think it's essential. So it was like saying we're also dealing with the part that comes to therapy. Yes. But, yes. You know, there's, there's all these other parts <laughs> of this person. Yeah. So if, if we're deciding that 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 is who that person is this part that we see yes. we yeah. are limiting their potential actually yeah know? right right well, yeah. that's my view of one yeah. part. but at the same time being able to, to genuinely be in resonance with or congruence to use your language yeah. Yeah. in resonance <laughs> with with that piece that that showed up is so beautiful and, I, and i've learned so much actually i think i'm a better client from my clients because their ability to show up like really show up for their for their sessions made me go oh gosh sometimes I don't really show up for mine you know like but I might have been holding a bit back whereas over time I've gone if I want to get the most out of this I should show up like with the bits that actually need healing yeah. hearing yes yeah no exactly yeah that's 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 a good point I mean it's and with your trainees you're sort of expecting you know of your, your clients of course they need at times anyway to expose those vulnerable parts and so we need to be doing the same in training uh, and with each other uh, I think is essential because it's sort of you know like going back to that point about you know I could be a disheveled emotional mess at 8 a.m uh, but but I, but I might have a, you know some very different parts to me uh, in in the rest of my life and and maybe it's okay it, it's hard because humans that's probably competency that's a threat there you know it's sort of like well if I'm a disheveled mess and I get emotional upset that I look incompetent or weak in some way well that's not good you know that's not very manly so I mustn't do that well okay you know it, no you probably don't want to be breaking into tears you know in the middle of work continuously that would it probably would cause problems at some level um but that's this is therapy you know and it's kind of you've locked the door it's confidential there's only the two of us I'm not going to ever reveal the details to anybody else uh, except for some very exceptional circumstances and 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 that's the whole point you know we we, we the rapport and the trust and the safety is mm -hmm. the having space to be able to get all of that stuff out and not worry about it um then you can go and shout at your employees later that day <laughs> no but you know that that you, you you're not all things to all people the, the same 
Uh, the same with the clients, you know, the degree to which how much of yourself do you how much of yourself do you put into or give uh, to to a client? And I, that's I'm not saying I've got the answer. I'm saying it's an important question to ask, because obviously you don't want to be offloading your problems particular because that's not what it's about. It's about them. But I also gain a very strong sense of people uh, very much liking the fact that you present as a human being. You might not have all of your relationships as perfect and everything in your life in this kind of almost ordered, beautiful, balanced way. You know, kind of like a driving instructor saying, well, I've, I've got to be good at driving to do the job or, or it's not going to look right. Yeah. So maybe we get we buy into that a little bit and think, well, we need to be absolutely psychologically spiritually mm. balanced <laughs> yeah, I, I, find, well, I find when I'm having the most personal breakdowns it's when yeah. there's something I could be like say talking or counseling or working with someone with something that I'm struggling with and yeah. I'll be like I'm feeling incongruent and in what yes what even if I'm not even if they're coming up with it it feels yes. like me holding space is somehow not right (laughs) there seems to be that that can sometimes cause some tension inside of me like you said almost an incongruency or something yeah because your own things are coming up while they're yeah yeah. Yeah, well that's that's a really good talking point though I mean because I think and and you know the the last two years I've had that experience so so um, unfortunately for me in the last two years I lost my my brother uh, and my mother so a year ago I lost my brother and two years ago almost the to the day uh, I lost my mother and uh, so obviously that's been a hard time personally but in that time uh, interestingly I've had clients who've lost their mothers or lost their lost their brothers and there's just that moment of course where that conversation comes up I've come to see you because you know I'm I'm grieving and this is what's happened and of course immediately your radar picks that up uh, and says, "All oh, right, okay, <laughs> this could be this could be triggering." Um, and that's that's. I suppose it's quite useful in the sense that you um, have the opportunity then to say, "Well, okay, that's that. What's what are we going to do with that? You know, this is this is not my stuff. It's somebody else that I'm listening to. It might be that you you might uh, divulge something of that. It's. I mean, the the, the you, to say, well, you know." I, you've had your own experience because again, it's about the fact that you're a human and you have losses as well. And that's okay, I guess, as long as I don't go and dive into my grief uh, or assume that there's the similarity extends to the point where, you know, we're sharing exactly the same experience because we stand a real chance of missing things then, you know, if their feelings and experience are quite different to our, to our own. I I think that's the key point. It's like, it's it's sharing it as a teaching like not so teaching maybe not the right thing but as a a connection point rather yeah, than connection point that's as, a good, a, yeah. as a um as a normal relationship you know when oh hey blah blah blah, blah. it's like yeah. I, I don't know the word for that but you know so how sometimes in conversation you're just like thinking about the next thing to share yeah. so if it's not that but but it's a connection point like oh yeah like like I totally understand that. That's how it's a connection point. I don't think there's a better phrase for it, whatever you call it, because that's right, isn't it? The only, I think the only thing you're trying to achieve there is to say, well, you know, things happen to me too. And and it's not trying to either diminish or expand whatever they're feeling, but, but just that point where you go, oh, right. Yeah. There's, there's, there's some camaraderie and notion of a connection there. And, and you could leave it at that in a sense. And you sort of go back onto, well, what is it? What's going on for you? And then the thing I was also curious about was was around that point, and it, and it might be a nuanced thing. I don't know exactly if I phrase it right, but where you said that for you, when you step into say a counselling space or holding space, that you step back. I found I did that a lot, especially initially, and then it sort of got to be where I almost felt like two me's. So I was always like, and and I then I needed to like integrate them a little bit more. So bring a bit more of me into my sessions yes. because yeah. always stepping back started to feel inauthentic. Yes, um, right. Yeah. So I don't know exactly what my question is, but do you have any thoughts on that? That, that well, you know, what does stepping back mean? Yeah, I think the aficionados in this space, the kind of. Uh, scientific studies of counseling and therapy are, are saying um it's okay to 
uh, you know, be congruent and express things that are coming up for you if in some way it's useful to the client. And I, I think that's probably right. You know, I mean, if it, internally <clears throat> we're probably gauging that and, and, and thinking, well, is that in any way going to be, is that in any way helpful to, to them? Um, and that's probably quite an important question to ask. It's sort of having that, it, you really, congruency is really not necessarily sharing everything that comes up in, in, in you, but it is about being aware of everything. If you, if I sit and I think, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm triggered because this guy is, you know, close enough to my age and has lost his brother and there's enough similarity to, you know, to, 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 to draw that comparison. Um, so maybe that internally I'm saying, well, okay, yeah, but it's not your brother and you'll have to put that to one side and make sure you tune into his experience and, and make sure you're not concentrating on your own. So that might be the internal conversation and none of it comes out particularly. It's just I'm being congruent and saying, all right, so I know that that might, that might trigger me a little bit and so I'll watch out for that. And, and that's my congruency. Um, and if it seems appropriate in some ways, a contact point, as you said, a contact point, it's like, well, oh, yeah, I can share with you, you know, that I've had a, a loss too that sort of relates in some way to your own. Uh, and leave it at that, you know, because there's just that kind of, as you say, it's just the person going, oh, right, oh, okay, yeah. So it, it's it's just a contact point. I don't want to talk about that and explore my grief, but I, but I do want to say I'm a human. These things uh, happen to all of us, hey. Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah and that's it um i think i've said it already but i'm sorry to hear about your brother and mom as well oh thank you for saying that yeah, yeah. but it, i mean it, it it's been an interesting time i guess because i'm exploring other people's grief with them and i and i, and I in some ways um again i'm going back to a supervisory conversation yesterday it, it, it's been perhaps helpful and cathartic because i've got my own experience and, and then I know that, that what that means for me, but I don't know what that means for my clients. They've got their different, uh, it, their, their grief is different, uh, in some ways similar, but always unique and different. Um, but it's helpful, I think, in terms of me having to uh, live with and get on with my own grief, uh, hearing from them. You know, you've got, you're coming alongside each other. Uh, in the sense that, okay, your experience is different. And if I really try hard, maybe I can understand your experience and it'll be, it's different to mine, but you know, there's a, there's a, there's a solidarity in the fact that we're, the human condition affects us all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really relate to that as well. That sort of walking, walking alongside or someone mm -hmm. else's healing and insights that I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's actually quite powerful for my own little journey. <laughs> I'll just put that in the in the heart space. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Good. Um, and then in terms of your yeah, your transition, we were talking a little bit before we started chatting about that transition from say working, you've had this really long career really. Yeah. Working yeah. for more, I guess other organizations corporate or academia yeah. or to, yeah. to now being in private practice yeah and yeah what was what, there anything that comes up for you to share in that yeah lots comes up I mean it's been a, um, an interesting time difficult time I, was, I mean I mostly I was academically involved before I came to Western Australia about three years ago three and a half years ago so got lots of things that I needed to do for my employer for the university, um, but also quite a lot of license to direct my own research, to direct my own teaching. So what happened and what we did was sort of directed by me and that was quite nice. Um, and, 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 and yet at the same time, there's a lot of restriction in terms of the administrative, um, how can I put it, requirements of the, of the organization. And it was quite nice to let that go <clears throat> on one level, but then I found myself here a little bit adrift. I was sort of doing bits of work here and there, teaching at some at different universities in Western Australia. But, you know, I wasn't really, you know, full-time employed or engaged in a role. And that was a very interesting time, you know, to sort of feel a bit like I'd lost my identity and that I was, I was um, well, I don't want to use the phrase free-falling, but I was, I was a bit concerned for a while. I was, I was thinking, what, <laughs> what? <laughs> How, is this, how am I going to make this work? I'm just, you know, just visualising. <laughs> falling through space. But it, it, yeah, I, I was, so I was worried about that and, and feel like I've now got through that. The COVID situation that we've all had our own individual experiences of was, was, 
was, you know, was was pretty catastrophic. That was quite difficult to get through in terms of, you know, I just decided to go it alone. Well, I got clients pretty quickly because obviously there was a lot of people, uh, you know, seeking out psychotherapeutic help. And I, I yeah, I, I felt like that was great. I was really pleased to get it started, but it's taken it's taken this last couple of years to really get that off the ground and feel like I'm on an even footing uh, in terms of the, the, the counselling side of things. Um, and, and, and obviously there's a lot of, you know, I feel like I've got quite a lot of autonomy. I can make decisions that I, I couldn't make in the same way working for somebody else. So that's very appealing. <clears throat> I don't know now that how I'd respond to going back to working in an administration because uh, I, 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 um, I quite like that autonomy aspect to it. Although I recognize it all with that comes a lot of responsibility. You know, I'm the, I'm the cleaner, I'm the marketing department, I'm the therapist. Uh, I, <laughs> I I do the accounts. It's sort of like that's like there's quite a lot that you have to you have to take on take on board. I don't think the house has ever been so clean. I, I, <laughs> I, I can't face the I, embarrassment. I always say that I'm like I I'm so grateful clients come because <laughs> well, it, it makes me clean the house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, so that. I think that keeps, you know, some other people in the house happy as well that I, that I feel the need to uh, uh, keep the place pretty. And, and when you said on an even keel, um, it, so yeah, I guess I'm just starting moving more from where I have been towards the counselling aspect. Is there anything you would suggest for me to, to be aware of in that? That's useful, that's helpful in terms of getting started? Um, listening to, to, a, to a podcast from a... Um, a counsellor who was saying that his big mistakes in the beginning were not investing in the business, that he just thought, well, you know, clients will magically come to me. <laughs> no, they'll just do which I'm laughing about. But as soon as he said it, I was sort of nodding, thinking, well, yeah, that's probably exactly what I thought. And also that it, you know, that it would just, it would just sort of happen without any kind of you know, I, 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 this is, I'm going to get to the point of sharing something useful here in a minute, but I, I don't like marketing. I don't like selling myself. I don't, there are aspects of this that need to be done that I don't particularly like, but they do work. You know, it is quite important. You know, if I, if I um, think about it carefully and then I take out an ad and I, and I, I put the money into that, you know, it's quite a low level thing, but I'll pay, pay for that kind of, um, you know, interaction with psychology today or whatever, uh, it does yield some results or it has yielded some results. And I guess the, 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 the thing is you have to keep on that. You know, I, I, I have to take my, my business cards, which are uh, sat in this rather attractive. Um, oh, um, I love it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I get these things now um, produced with my very nice photo on it. I guess that's marketing, you know, at a very basic level, but, uh, but investing in that's quite important that there's some, way of presenting yourself like you are doing with a podcast that you you've got you know people will of course get everything from google so they they, they will immediately type in counseling location and so you need to come up you need to appear when they when they put in gabrielle and you know therapy it's a South Fremantle. They need to do, yeah, search that and see see you there. And I don't know that I've got that 100 right yet, but I think the 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 website um, I certainly got it to a place where it where it yeah appears so people can find it. And then the Psychology Today thing helped. But I mean, being frank, the biggest help for me has definitely been word of mouth. I've got um, some local doctors, local GPs who refer patients to me. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm a counsellor, by the way, just to be clear about that. But I, but I have got, I have got some uh, patients sent to me from from doctors. Well, that's enormously helpful. And I go, I guess I've I've probably benefited from the fact that it's been a struggle to get people into mental health care plans. Uh, quick it's expediently they can't get in it's 12 weeks or it's three months or it's six months or whatever and so that was a barrier and so I've I've kind of found a little niche there where I, I've got space for people and 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 quite a lot of experience so they could send a broad range of people to me I'm curious um this discussion has been one that's been coming up 
and me sort of entering this space is like some people don't know the difference between psychologists and counselors right. how would you describe that difference in Australia because I think it's also quite particular <laughs> the difference is particular to Australia as well it's Australia yeah yeah, so a clinical psychologist needs to be a registered clinical psychologist. And so they've got to have gone through the hoops that give them the registration as a clinical psychologist. And that's not the case for counselling. Uh, in reality, uh, you could have a lot of experience and qualifications as a counsellor or not so many. It, it's not, I guess the general feeling would be, yeah, it's not regulated in the same way. Uh, counselling has got lots of training and potential and possibilities and ways of regulating and it's got organizations such as the Australian Counseling Association and and some strong will in some of the you know Northern Territories I think and Victoria to um, put counselors in a position where they can for instance uh, get the Medicare rebate which is which is a huge uh, step of course as far as bolstering mental health provision is concerned. And so that that would be great as long as the as long as the regulation is in place. So you're trying to quality assure your counsellors. That would be a, I think that would be really good news for uh, people's mental health and the provision as well as for the counsellors. But yeah, there's a there's a difference. Certainly, there's a difference. I mean, you 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 might draw it up as saying, oh, well, there's a difference in the length and depth of training. Well, that's true, but it depends on the counsellor. They may have done 25 <laughs> years of training. There's a difference in the actual delivery because i'm i'm still grappling with if there is because i don't it, it's pretty much same structure depending on where the person's come that who that person is and what their yeah and, and approaches right well one of the issues that, that is key and important would be diagnosis and so with with clinical psychology you you get into the business of diagnosing of running uh, assessment tools designed to identify whether, for instance, you have or have not got borderline personality disorder and interpreting that and making a, making a diagnosis. And counsellors don't. So the, so the, but if you're, let's say, for example, the clients come through for talking therapy and the person is employing uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, then the, the issue would be, um, I guess the length and the quality of, of training and supervision in that person, not whether what their particular profession is, but whether they whether they're good at delivering the cognitive behavioural therapy is what you're interested in. So, uh, it, I th I think the the counselling space is it seems to be growing in terms of regulation and and how that's done. I mean, it, 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 I, I think unfortunately it might it might do a misservice to the to the time served, very well trained, competent counsellors out there in that it sort of makes it look like some sort of weaker second class alternative, but that really isn't fair. In New Zealand, for example, counselling is actually more popular than psychology. Right. So, so, I don't know, it's just a really odd discussion to me, the whole thing. I'm just trying to grapple with it because I think, I think for, from my perspective, um, I'm going to do a little bit of like client education on this stuff because yes. I've had so many clients ask me about de definitions and what, yeah. what and what's the difference. And, yeah. and you know, they don't know. They don't know the difference between the psychology. And they don't necessarily either have to give me a reason. But I quite like it when they do. <laughs> a lady who came and said, well, I talked to my doctor, she recommended you, and I thought maybe I'd be okay with a male therapist, but now I don't think I will. Um, and that was, that's her explanation. I thought, you know what, well, good on you. You know, thank you for not sitting there suffering yeah, therapist when you're not happy because that's no no good and i and absolutely you know 100 wish you every success yeah i don't want people to sit there feeling uncomfortable i want them to sort of feel the opposite that the least that they feel is this is okay i'm going to be all right with this person i at least want that as a starting point is there anything else that you would feel cool to share with those who may be listening or that's popped in for you that's that's left over well i i guess I, I think one of the things that occurs to me is that, and this is this is kind of getting in on the side of regulation and accreditation and all of that stuff, is that I, I can't really speak highly enough of how useful good quality supervision is. Mm -hmm. what, however you're going to obtain that, you know, whether that's kind of 
really official because you're heading down the route of getting a ticket. Well, okay, you must follow the rules and do whatever it is they say, get the right person that allows you to, to get the ticket. But even if you're not doing that, when it comes to, you know, going back to my early experience with Gene, with Gene O'Keefe, and that, that was supervision. Uh, and Jean would, I would sit by the side of Jean while she, while we were running these groups. And in the early years, she would need, she would need to occasionally just reach her hand across and touch me on the forearm, which meant shut up. And that was excellent supervision because I learned not to talk as much, <laughs> and it, and it served me tremendously well I'm not, I don't have a problem talking but it but of course it, in the context of therapy I really really want to be good at listening yeah um, so so you so that helped you know that's just an example but I, but what, wherever I've found it wherever I've been whether it was Miller and Rolnick and colleagues in the MI or Gene in the counseling or you know various other people uh, my 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 psychologist supervisor now uh, that's been really really important I don't think I'll stop ever I don't have any intention of not of stopping supervision because it's just so powerful and useful I mean you know we're, we're not doing supervision right now but even our conversation this morning you know it's bringing up ideas and issues and things that I'll think about possibly with the next client when they arrive mm. and so you know that space with somebody else who is a peer or maybe they're more experienced than you, or whatever. Maybe even maybe even less experienced mm. is is so incredibly useful. You talked a little bit about you know the idea of congruency and incongruency, and 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 you know in psychology nowadays, and I'm not talking about the profession of a psychologist, but just the broad study area of psychology. Of course, there's a lot of focus on the idea of a divided mind. You know that we've got a sort of reptilian amygdala type ancient brain and we've got a more recent new sort of neocortex prefrontal cortex bit to the brain and that they operate differently and that if you attach someone to a PET scan you can see these two areas of the brain light up under different circumstances well when people are operating self-talk and that kind of idea of working out what's going on inside their head that's what's happening you know they're, they're, they're often they're at their shame anger fear concern responses related to the reptilian part of the brain and the two plus two equals four logical operations are related more to the prefrontal cortex well you know that's so incredibly useful in therapy repeatedly always stealing things from other people one explanation i was listening to just the other day was the the idea of it kind of relates to acceptance commitment therapy actually but the, the idea that i deal with my internal thoughts by saying to myself two questions one of which is is this thought useful? Is it helpful? Is it useful or whatever? And then the second one is, what's it doing to me? And, and really, I sort of think, well, you could probably apply those two questions, to, you know, in therapy, but also for ourselves, continuously. This is just nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. It's hurtful. It's unhelpful. And it's just bringing me down. <laughs> and I didn't, and I'm not trying to do anything with that other than notice it. I'm not trying to operate a, not a way of calming you, but th that is a way of quieting mm. the, the riotous voices and thoughts that we have is, is this thinking useful? And, you know, what's it doing to me? I quite like the aspect of the, the kind of whatever it is, authenticness and being a bit vulnerable and stuff and having problems as well, because it, that, that, I guess that's the thing that people carry around inside them all the time, but they're not free to necessarily let it out. And there's good reason for that is because they're supposed to look competent. And, and, and if they don't, it, it doesn't make them a very good mate. You know, they're not a very good prospect as a partner or a mate because they're because they're, they're looking, they might look incompetent. So we're guarded very much for good reason about that. But I, I think, um, you know, Rolnick saying, he needs to stop himself being clever and that kind of thing is perfect. Yeah, uh, it's the sort of stuff that's going on, isn't it, inside us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just reflecting on my week and it's probably that, like it's probably that competence thing is because I've just felt, I've just felt so incompetent in, yeah. in a bizarre way. But because I, I haven't had as many um, like flow days as I would normally have or right, these right. days where I get to sort of, clean up all my messes that I've created all the other times. Yeah. And it's just been like, yeah. <laughs> and then that, that incompetence feeling creeps in. So I was like, oh, I quite like that 
that reminder that that can be. Yeah. Well, you, you, I think that those guys, Dachi and Ryan, these, these, these self-determination theory, that's the biggest, the biggest theory in in decades that's been going on in psychology, which relates to seeing everything. They've got that um, idea that, that, that relatedness to other people, obviously, in some way, competency and autonomy, are the, those are the three. Those are the three things, the three factors that we've that we've got that really create meaning. You know, we're in trouble or we're not happy. We're in trouble or unstable in some way if we don't have those relatedness, competency, and and I keep thinking about this and trying to test it out as a theory as I'm driving or whatever to the school and I'm looking at the lollipop guy, you know, kind of that that crosses the kids across the road at the school and thinking, well, how how could that be for him? And I thought. Oh no, it does. He he's got competency. Uh, there's rules around when you stand up and the blowing of the whistle and where you stand and stuff. He he's got autonomy because he decides when is appropriate to let them go and when it's time to stop the traffic. Uh, and he's got relatedness because there he is chatting around to the kids and to waves at the parents as they stop their cars as to let them across. And I thought mm-hmm. it it crosses all domains probably. You know, CEO of a big company. He's got that to some somewhere or those needs, and the guy sat on the little the little stool at the side of the road doing the road crossing. He's got that those needs as well. They just look kind of different, I suppose, yeah. externally. But when I think about it, it's like people, even the shy retiring types, they want relatedness, even if it's with a small number of people. They they need that to some degree, and competency and whatever it is, it could be running a multinational, or it could be making cathedrals out of matchsticks. It, it, it's competency, isn't it, all the time? And, and some choice that we're making. How many people do you meet who are happy in their employment when they've like, stand there for 12 hours, <laughs> put, put oh. these things on this belt, conveyor I belt. Did that for two weeks. <laughs> and I was like, okay, at least when I studied Marx's theory, I understood it. <laughs> but I was like, oh my the God. owners of the means of production. Yeah. I was like, I literally have a visual of what that felt like. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. You're, you're one of like... the automatons in the oh Marxist theory. That's right. And with all that noise, and I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that, that area of, it's like uh, neuropsychology now, isn't it? There's such an incredible and better understanding of the brain than there ever was. But it ju- I think, you know, that's a great idea for us practitioners for holding space is, is you know, whatever's going on for the person, that, that kind of technique of saying, you've got at least two bits inside you that are separate where you can, you can always have that observing self that sits back and says, ah, at the moment, what you're doing is you're ruminating about the past or you're worrying and fantasizing about the future. That's what you're doing. And then you sort of ask yourself, well, if I can do that, it means I am separate to my thoughts. There is a bit of me that can just see what's going on from, you know, can step back and say, ah, and just unhooks us, just unhooks us a little bit from that unhelpful, chaotic mess that sometimes the insides of our heads are. Maybe we should leave with that, end with that idea, Gabrielle, because that's kind of, yeah, that's that's my thought going forward for this week, is I'm going to practice at times unhooking from unhelpful thinking and saying, well, okay, that's what you're doing at the moment. Is that helpful? What's it doing to you, you know? I think that's such a beautiful and honourable place for us, to, for us to conclude. But thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And there's so many bits in there that sparked inspiration for me and I'm sure it will be really helpful to others. So thank you so much. It's been very much a pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me.